Hi, everyone. Yin here. I'm one of the partners at MCJ, and I host the Skilled Labor Workforce series on the pod. Today's guest is Dylan Welch. Dylan grew up in the foothills of California and Arizona, went to school in Colorado, and has had quite a non-linear career path. He started off his career building custom motorcycles out of his garage and then became a carpenter and then a subcontractor, and he is currently the recycling plant manager at Amp Robotics. We learn a lot from Dylan about his career journey as well as the recycling industry. I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Hi, everyone. Yin here. I'm one of the partners at MCJ, and I host the Skilled Labor Workforce series on the pod. Today's guest is Dylan Welch. Dylan grew up in the foothills of California and Arizona, went to school in Colorado, and has had quite a non-linear career path. He started off his career building custom motorcycles out of his garage and then became a carpenter and then a subcontractor, and he is currently the recycling plant manager at Amp Robotics. We learn a lot from Dylan about his career journey as well as the recycling industry. So with that, Dylan, welcome to the show. Yin, thank you so much for having me on. So we were connected through Matanya Horowitz, who is the CEO of Amp Robotics. After I put an announcement out to the MCJ community that on the series, we'd love to talk to someone who's worked on the front lines of recycling and waste management. And he immediately emailed back and said, we have to talk to you. And so here we are, excited to learn from you. First things first, tell us more about you and your upbringing. Absolutely. First off, I'm honored to be here. And it makes me incredibly happy that I was his choice for this podcast. I grew up in San Francisco, California, lived there for a few years. Family ended up moving to Scottsdale, Arizona. Lived there, went through middle school, high school, and then found I really, really love the snow. And I love the mountains and the place closest to me that I could start going to school and really enjoy life was Colorado. So I moved up to Breckenridge, Colorado when I was 17. That's a little my personal past. One of my favorite places on earth. (laughs) Might as well. Tell us about any interests that you had growing up as a kid. I guess you could say I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I come from a family of athletes. I've always been an athlete, so I played sports growing up. That didn't interest me as much as machinery or a machine like a motorcycle, bicycle, go-karts, whatever it was. I want to know the ins and outs of how everything worked. So my interest growing up sports, technology. Again, I'm a millennial, so I grew up with one of those flip phones or the Nokia brick phones that you could throw and would stay charged forever and then saw the progression in technology until I had an interface that I could talk to in my hand. So technology has been a huge part of my life growing up as well. I'm so curious, how did your family support your interest in machinery? Did you put together a bunch of stuff when you were a kid, take it apart? Yeah. I can start off when I was really little. We used to live in Raider District in San Francisco. So Palace of Fine Arts was very close, and they had this place called the Exploratorium. I remember a couple of key instances that really fascinated me. They had a skeleton that was riding a bike, and you had to actuate its thigh muscle, its hamstring, its calf muscle with a few different buttons. I was probably five years old at this time. Just fascinated of how I can make its legs move and function. 
<laughs> by pressing a button. And there are little instances like that that really intrigue me. Let's fast forward to talking about your career path. So you have this interest in machinery and how things move. How did you put that to use? Back in high school, I would help out any single one of my friends taking apart their dirt bikes, any type of power sports, modifying it for them. So let me know or train me on the intricacies of a motor and how they worked. I would take anything and everything fully apart because I was really intrigued of the fundamental aspects that go together to make a system and how they truly work. So I got started in power sports, ranging from go-peds to dirt bikes, and then again, graduating in the future to some more sophisticated racing motorcycles that really, really helped me build my knowledge and skill set. Let's talk about your career path. So you have this passion for knowing how things work, complicated systems that depend on each other, many components, and you have been a carpenter, a contractor, and now you run a recycling plant. So tell us how that interest translated into a career with these roles in it. I really wish I could tell you exact A to Z or A to B path, exact route I got here. But truly, I pursued jobs or opportunities that fascinated me and I enjoyed. That started off again. I'll go back to being a mechanic. It started off there. I guess you could say I'm a jack of all trades, not a master of all, but I'm a master of a few. That has really helped me apply my skill set here. So yes, I was a carpenter in the past as well. I was a handyman up in Breckenridge. Anytime something needed to be fixed, whether it was an HVAC system or it was an electrical circuit in someone's house or it was a car, I had the abilities and the knowledge to dive in and help a friend or a customer out. So it started off from the self-employed aspect, really, a lot of it. I want to zoom into talk about AMP a little bit and then zoom back out and then we'll eventually zoom back into the company and what you do. So you have a really fascinating story about how you found your job at AMP. So maybe tell us in a couple of sentences, what is AMP at the highest level? And then tell us about the really cool story of how you came to work there. Let's go overall. AMP is an industrial equipment manufacturer. So what we do is we build robots to separate recycling. We know that you run the recycling plant there. So how did you get the job? This will derive straight back to my nonlinear career path. I was a subcontractor for AMP. For those of you that don't know what a subcontractor is, let's say a company is building out a new facility. They might not have the internal staff, carpenters, electricians, plumbers, skilled tradesmen. So they will go out and hire those individuals. That's what a subcontractor is. And you were a subcontractor building out what? In the beginning, I built a couple offices at our old headquarters as we were drastically expanding. They needed more room for individuals in their office and employees. So I built out a couple main offices. After I built out the main offices in their production facility, I moved over to their second location that was in Broomfield, very close to Louisville, where our headquarters is right now, to build out a full kitchen and their new production floor. After that contract or that job was done, we actually moved over into a new facility that AMP was starting up, built out a lot of the offices here, installed a shower at this facility, a lot of little bits and bobs that you can think of that come with standing up a new plant or standing up a factory. I imagine that someone who's doing subcontracting, I wouldn't think that they'd be an obvious shoe-in for running a plant. So how did that connection happen? Neither would I. I'm right there with you on that. So when I was subcontracting for AMP, this was just a normal everyday job. It wasn't something that I was passionate about. I was good at it and it paid the bills. 
I was actually building a new engineering office and was looking down at their research and development laboratory. And what I saw were engineers working on items or machines that I did in my garage at home. And this thought right here ticked my mind to say, I would love to work at this company. Any possible door I could open to get in, I would love to find a way. You saw what the engineers were working on. Did you then go onto the job site and see what roles were available? How did that work? Yes, I did. I did have a friend from up in the mountains that I used to play hockey with. I think he was an operations manager at AMP. So that's also how I got in the door, how we got the subcontracting jobs to help AMP out and building up their facilities. I opened up the door to him, reached out with a phone call, asked if there were any opportunities available, and he listed a couple opportunities. One was a maintenance engineer and a shift supervisor at a new startup facility, the one which I now run. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> so you were subcontracting for AMP, building out cabinets, and then you saw what the engineers were doing and you thought, that's a type of machinery that really gets my juices going. I am excited if I can do more of that work contacted your friend, and then got your foot in the door. And what was your initial role at the company? My initial role was a shift supervisor. So operating on the production floor, fulfilling daily aspects of operation and running a shift at the facility. That encompasses multiple maintenance tasks. I can go anywhere from A to Z, but overseeing personnel, overseeing fundamental operation and optimal operation of your system. Can you double click into that? What does optimal operation of your system entail for someone with like zero baseline? Should we go back to what this system is or what type of plant? Let's do it, yes. This was back about two years ago now. AMP was testing out a new prototype facility. This is where I initially put my foot and door into the company and took a position at this facility. This prototype what we're testing out is something called a secondary sortation facility. Now, let me go into a little bit of detail in regards to what a sortation facility in the recycling industry does. And maybe even to zoom out a little bit more, because I think this is a good opportunity to, is to maybe give a bit of a history on the recycling industry and what has led to the need for primary sortation, secondary sortation, and all that. Let's just define recycling. Recycling is defined for me by repurposing or remanufacturing a material after it has reached the end of its initial use. Now, we can take those materials again, whether that be paper, plastic, cardboard, break those materials back down and repurpose them so we can put them back into the economy or back into the manufacturing world to be remanufactured. Great. Love that 100,000 foot view. Let's get one click deeper. From a consumer's end, I have my green bin and then my black bin and then my blue bin. And I love if you can take us through what happens after the truck picks up the stuff from the blue bin and it gets to a facility. Recycling started around end of the 1960s, early 1970s. And they had at that time what we call multiple stream recycling. This entails the consumer at the base level separating these materials into their separate containers. Now a hauler, whatever that may be, will come pick those materials up already sorted and then deliver them to a recycling center where they would have to sort that material or use a very intensive process to separate that material more. So by about 1990, the idea of single stream recycling came about. And this is where we are actually combining all these materials at your household. Everyone has a 95-gallon container that they put on the outside of their street. 
They're going to take those recyclable materials, put them in the container, and that is going to go to what we call a material recovery facility. Now, they can deal with a multitude of materials ranging from UBC, which are beverage cans, anything with your classic Coke bottle to beer cans, etc. Fibers, different plastic resins, one through seven. They can host a multitude of materials. Some material recovery facilities can capture more than others. But I think about 2000, this was the primary force or a primary methodology that most towns, cities are using to capture recyclable materials. What led to people sorting their recycled goods back in the 60s to just dump everything in one bin in the 90s and still to this day? What prompted that shift? Was it that technology got better at the MRFs, the material recovery facilities? Technology did get better, but I think we did hit a roadblock right about 2000 or mid-1990s. Separating the material at the consumer level puts a lot of burden on the hauler. It becomes a lot more expensive to haul all these materials in a separated form and then deliver them to a recycling facility. So now, to lessen the burden on a state or any municipality that is paying for this recycling service, combining all those materials together saves cost to each one of those municipalities and lowers the price per ton of processing these materials. It resulted into combining everything together. Understood. Okay. Then the thought is, where does that sorting cost then get displaced to downstream? Or maybe it was just, let's bundle it all up and let's send it abroad. Yes. I think there's two distinctly different questions there. So let's talk about what happens when a 95-gallon container reaches a material recovery facility, and you'll hear me say MRF from time to time. All this material would be deposited onto a tip floor. After that, it would be sent into a spider web of conveyors. <laughs> That's the high-level term that I could use. There would be a very manually intensive process to sort these materials. Just picture a conveyor belt with 30 to 50 individuals standing on the side and selecting a certain material and putting it into a bunker. This bunker is just where we capture the same types of material. So that's a base history and ground level of what a MRF is. It's a highly manual labor intensive process. All this material would flow through a vast array or a very simple array of conveyors stationed with a lot of personnel on each side of one of the conveyors. Gotcha. Okay. So a lot of people in these MRFs sorting manually. Yes. And this is not an easy job. It's very dirty. Conveyors are moving incredibly quickly. So manual sortation of these materials is when I talked about, I think we reached a roadblock or a stoppage in the improvement of our technology back in the late 90s, early 2000s. I also think that if you look at the amount of volume of recyclable goods that each household produces, my guess is that that has also gone up dramatically. I don't have any data to back that up. And if you can share some stats, that would be interesting. I can share some data points, but what I can share is the type of materials. Back in the 80s, 90s, newspapers are what some traditional MRFs were modeled off of. Now, that has reached a fork in the road with the internet back in the early 90s, 2000s, to really, we don't see that many newspapers anymore. But now we have a massive amount of, let's say, OCC or larger, heavier objects. What is OCC? Oh, I guess I should have described this. That is old corrugated cardboard. Sounds complicated. It's not at all. So you have increase in volume of different materials, and you have old factories that were designed to intake 
older materials that no longer are coming into the MRFs, and you have highly manual sortation process that has led to what? What is the precipice we're at that then is prompting new technologies to be developed? I currently think that the amount of waste that is recycled in the United States stays around 25 to 35% and has stayed at that rate for about the past 10 years. If we truly want to keep increasing the amount of material that we can repurpose and remanufacture, we're going to have to develop technology that can move faster, identify more material, and separate it more quickly and efficiently than we can with these manual labor-derived material recovery facilities. A lot of MRFs in the past, they relied upon material that retains its original geometric shape, whether that be OCC, a 3D container, and from the household consumer, the path that that material follows from that 95-gallon bit to the tipping floor at a MRF, in between, that material is degraded, deteriorated. You could just imagine what happens inside of a recycling bin when it gets dumped into a recycling truck or it gets squished, smashed up. So a lot of the material that flows through a normal MRF, they have different processes like screens or manual sortation. But what these are derived on, especially the mechanical aspects, is all that material needs to retain its original shape. Now, if it becomes malformed or distorted, it may fall through a screen. I can dive into a screen as a little bit. Most material recovery facilities use, let's say, separate paper and 3D objects. That would be a screen. It's going to be a set of rotating discs that's going to have an aperture or a hole that material can fall through that is smaller than paper. The lighter material is going to ride up top and over, and now that smaller 3D material is going to fall through like containers, Pepsi bottles, UBC cans, etc. They're going to have a multitude or an array of other equipment as well, but it relies on the shape of that material. So once it becomes degraded, the only person that truly is going to be able to sort that material out, if it even gets to them, is a manual sorter. They're going to be able to interpret, classify, and identify that material up to around 50 to 60 picks a minute, but that's hard to sustain. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. What is the technology that you all are working on at AMP that is going to help bring more volume of recycled goods back into the economy at a higher rate? What I truly believe at AMP, what we are doing to mitigate and or push our technology further in the future to try and step over some of the roadblocks that I mentioned that I observe in the recycling industry that I believe we've hit a Not a standstill, but we need an extra jump or we need some help from technology. Now, I really related to material that is degraded. 
material that can't be sorted by a traditional MRF because it doesn't meet the same characteristics that will allow that sortation process to work efficiently. So where AMP has stepped in, back with our robots in the beginning, all of our robots are based off of our neural networks. So this is an AI-driven platform that identifies and classifies that material and then will in turn send a signal to a robot to pick that material up and place it into a chute or a different conveyor to be sorted, a bunker, etc. So our robots were originally created to help supplement some of the need at these material recovery facilities because manual labor in an industry like this is very hard to come by. You see most MRFs are always hiring. It's very hard to look at a conveyor belt and sort these materials for even a few hours, let alone eight hours. Now a human can sustain 60 picks a minute. Maybe. It's very hard to do if you look at a conveyor belt for about 10 hours. You tend to get very dizzy. We saw that there was a huge need to automate this process. And that's where we identified what some of the biggest problems were and found a way that we could continue pushing even some of the older style MRFs forward with our technology to help them get over the hump, to help identify some of these materials from the ground floor, a tip floor, up to classifying these materials and ensure that they are separated at a sufficient quality. So we can, again, repurpose and remanufacture these materials into another product to create a circular economy where we continue to reuse and reuse all these materials that we have or that have reached the end of their life. And it also sounds like there's a workforce angle here too, in that you see just a lot of attrition out of the recycling industry because it is a hard job. And so having new technology being put in place can help MRFs run more efficiently, can help people run more efficiently. And at the end of the day, it's helping drive more of that circularity, like you said. Absolutely. All right. I have tactical questions on your job now, which is running a plant. What square footage are we talking here? How many people are working in what types of shifts? Give us a picture of what it's like to step into your job any given day. I run a recycling facility for Amp Robotics. This is a secondary sortation facility. I dove in a little in the beginning of what a primary sortation facility is. Now, let me explain exactly what we do here. A lot of these materials at these primary MRFs are not being captured by their sortation methodology. So they're falling through the cracks. And each one of these materials is going to be sent off to a landfill, never to be used again, never to be repurposed. So a few years ago, we saw there may be a need for facilities like this in Denver, Colorado. And we have one in Atlanta, Georgia, and Cleveland, Ohio. I'm not sure if we actually dove into the definition of a primary. So a primary sortation facility is... You have the stuff coming from the blue bins, and then you have these belts, or maybe you did. Yeah, a primary sortation facility is all the recyclable materials that is dropped off at a normal MRF, or we will call it a primary MRF. All that material is separated through a highly manually intensive and labor-intensive process to reach the end output, which is separated commodities. Okay. And then what you do at the secondary sorting facilities is take the outputs from the primary and then further sort it. Exactly. One of the main problems with the recycling industry today that we can use our technology to sort, as I was talking about degraded materials earlier, that they're incredibly hard to detect and analyze by, I wouldn't say antiquated, but older recycling systems. This is where our technology pushes the boundaries further, where no matter how degraded 
a piece of paper, a plastic bottle is, a piece of cardboard, an aluminum can, we can train our AI to observe it, classify it, and then separate it. So when you think about all the collective things that come out of people's blue bins, it sounds like all of that gets dumped at a primary MRF. And then what percentage of the stuff then has to end up at a secondary MRF, like the ones that you guys are setting up, versus the ones that get sorted that don't have to get sent to a secondary MRF? What happens to that bulk? I think we're talking about the recovered materials from a primary MRF compared to a secondary MRF or What are some historical recovery rates of a primary material recovery facility? But they can vary anywhere between 50 to 90%. Out of the materials that can be recovered, I would say is around 75 to 90% that gets put into a recycling bin. Yes, there are going to be the golf clubs. There are going to be the containers. There is going to be the organic waste. There's going to be the extension cords that could be recycled at a different facility, just not primarily at any type of recovery facility. But out of all that material going into a recycling facility, usually only around 70% is truly recovered. Out of the 85 to 90% plus material that could be repurposed into something else or remanufactured into something else in the future. Of all the stuff that goes into primary MRFs, what percentage do you guys see at a secondary MRF? The stuff that was hard to sort and now needs to go through further sorting. So we'll take 100% of their residue. Now, we're not going to be able to achieve 100% recovery rate on all of their residue. That's something that we strive to do. Now, we have to develop new markets for some of these materials. Some of the recycling industry is somewhat antiquated in regards to where we can repurpose these materials. It is driven by what is available out there. So, I mean, we really are hoping to create our own markets for some of these plastics that have never existed before, whether it's moving to a PET reclaimer or sending our material off to a pelletizer that's going to turn our recycled plastics into clothes. So that's a hard question to define exactly what we can recover because a lot of these material recovery facilities will process the material through at a substantial throughput, send that material off. We'll take all of their residue. So it's hard to say exactly what is recoverable in their residue. Interesting. I'm trying to learn what the pipeline looks like. And so you have all the stuff that people recycle. And then some of it's super easy to sort. You have Pepsi bottles that are very clearly Pepsi bottles. That gets all sorted. And then it gets sent back to a can-making factory that gets melted and then sent back to the people that are making cans. And then you have the my Driscoll raspberry container that's so mutilated that you can't tell what it is. That stuff has to go to a secondary MRF and get sorted in a more robust system. And it sounds like what AMP is doing is taking all of the like really hard to sort stuff and applying your AI to be able to sort all that into a very clearly distinguishable buckets. Is that fair? You hit it on the nose. That's what we use our technology for. We use our technology to identify and sort materials that can't be identified with a normal or typical system at a material recovery facility. So that's also why we deploy our AI and robots into traditional material recovery facilities to help offset some of the burden on manual labor as well. Gotcha. Okay, so your technology can actually go to primary MRFs to help sortation become better. And then the stuff that just really is 
unidentifiable can get sent to an R&D plant that you work on to help train the AI to be able to recognize faster, better, et cetera. I want to make the clear distinction, though. We are out of the R&D phase with our secondary sortation facilities. So we're fully operational. Same with our plants in Atlanta, Georgia, and Cleveland, Ohio. We will absorb some R&D capacity as we are located in Denver, very close with our headquarters, and it's a substantial testing ground to test any of these degraded materials and how well we can sort them using our AI. In the plant that you run, what does the day-to-day look like? Tell us about your staff. Tell us about what people's roles are and how you keep it running. On a daily basis at this secondary sortation facility, I oversee a really actually small, tight-knit team. It's not the traditional team of 30 to 50 individuals that are operating birth during a daily basis or during a daily shift. We operate our facility with four individuals on the floor at a time. Now, I do have an array of maintenance technicians as well. Because as we know, you can encounter anything and everything in residue. We know what goes into recycling bins or accidentally gets put into recycling bins. It could be a baseball bat, so equipment can get damaged, conveyor belts can break. And this is where I get to help all the individuals on the floor keep the system moving, keep the system going, using my skill set from the past, whether if it's a conveyor belt breaking, an electrical circuit or a controls problem, this is where I think I can tie it back into what I truly enjoy and what I like to learn on a daily basis. I'm curious how you interact with folks that are outside of the plant, folks that are working on software engineering, people that are working on the business side of the house. Is there much of that interaction? Absolutely. I mean, we are on the ground floor. This started off as a prototype facility and has transitioned into a fully operational facility. So I observe system performance on a daily basis and also provide feedback to our engineering team and our software team to better our product, better our equipment, and optimize our equipment overall. It's the continued iteration of our technology to keep pushing the recycling industry forward and pushing our AI forward on what we can actually observe and sort. I think that you've mentioned a few times that the recycling system is quite antiquated. And so what you all are doing at AMP is a really interesting step forward in helping us build a more circular economy. I'm curious, outside from what is happening at AMP, are there any other innovation areas that you're excited about? Not at this point. We are pushing the limits of technology in regards to recycling and waste within this industry. The automation that is coming with the technology that you all are building is hopefully going to make factories, make recycling plants run more efficiently, but also could replace the need for manual labor. I'm wondering what your perspectives are on automation replacing people's roles, or maybe there is a yes and we can repurpose manual labor to work on something else in the system that's going to make it run more efficiently. Love to hear your thoughts on that. I don't believe that we are going to replace job positions or employment opportunities within a community, anything like that. That is not the aim or the goal of our product. What I believe is there is already a gap in regards to staffing facilities around the recycling industry. And there's only one thing that's going to continue to happen as the population of the U.S. grows, the population of the world grows. We are going to produce more waste. There is a tremendous amount of value 
and all that waste. And we're trying to define the technology that can capture it all. And that's what we do here at our secondary sortation facility in Denver. And again, there's already a substantial gap. I don't think it's going to take away from any type of job opportunity, but repurposing these job opportunities that are not based in a very dirty, very harsh environment will achieve significant employment over time rather than continuing to work at a MRF. What type of roles could people then pursue in recycling management outside of the MRFs if automation comes in and helps alleviate the need? I can absolutely elaborate on some of these roles that we may need when we start pushing automation into this industry more and more. What we're talking about here, the skilled trades, every recycling facility needs electricians, needs a maintenance technician. Now, you don't have to go on a, a traditional linear career path to get there my management style is I have to know the fundamentals of every single operating system that I am working with or working on, whether that is material, people, or equipment. I have to know the ins and outs of each. I can't train an individual to work on an electrical system or work on a robotic system unless I understand the equipment. And the equipment is what makes this facility work and the people are there to back it up. Now, your personnel maintain every single bit of this equipment. That encompasses a significant portion of the skilled trades. What a beautiful circle back to what got you excited to pursue this job working in the recycling industry to begin with, which is how can I make systems work and how can I understand the systems more deeply so the systems can work more efficiently? I can tell you what I do on a daily basis. What I have always thought my job description was and anything I felt a significant purpose behind. I try to harmonically balance and drive people, equipment, and materials. I try and harmonically balance three, and that's with any type of management or plant management job. Those are the three things that need to be driven forward in harmony to achieve success. That's the main aspect, main goal of my job on an everyday basis. Now, that main company troubleshooting an electrical cabinet, working with an individual for any type of new training orientation or training routine, working with different departments throughout our company to help them out as well, provide feedback to engineering, provide feedback for the software team, because myself and my team are on the ground floor. We see this every day. It's still a dirty environment. We take in MRF residue that was going to go to the landfill. And then every day I get to come back home knowing all that material that was going to the landfill is now going to be repurposed, which it's a beautiful day in Colorado right now. It's snowing. It's the reason I moved up to Colorado in the first place and why I love my job so much in defining a role in the climate world. I just imagine in the future, someone's career path, instead of saying, okay, well, your job is now to be a sorter and you're going to do this for eight hours a day and you're going to be in a smelly environment and you're going to a trit out in a year to, hey, actually, you get to work in a MRF, but you get to focus on maintaining the machinery. You need to focus on keeping the electric system running so that we can take in more volume. That's a beautiful vision. I don't think there is a roadblock in any person's career path. If you are fascinated by a system, then if you are driven enough, you can learn everything you need to know by asking questions to individuals, whether they be a mentor or an internship, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be the traditional career path. Ask questions. That's what I did my whole life. So I'm going to continue to do that and going to continue to learn from individuals all around me. 
What advice do you have for people that are interested in learning how systems work, but don't really know what to major in in school or what jobs to pursue? I'm a perfect example of that. I went to Colorado Mountain College, started going to Denver Metro, pursuing a degree in marketing. And none of this backed up what I was passionate about growing up. Again, like you said, learning how systems work, the fundamental ideals of technology. I learned in my own garage. I'm incredibly self-taught. And what makes me happy today and what I want to continue to pass on to other individuals that they don't necessarily have to take the traditional career path. As long as you keep pursuing what you're passionate about and have the willingness to ask questions, to learn every day, you may fall into an industry or a position that you love like I have. Awesome. I think that's a really nice note to end on. Dylan, thank you so much for coming on to the show and talking to us about your journey and what you're so clearly passionate to be doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode. Thanks.